Welcome to The Wildlife, episode 28. I am your host, Jason Goldman, and this week I'm joined by dolphin scientist Justin Gregg. Justin is a research associate at a scientific nonprofit called the Dolphin Communication Project, where he studies dolphin social cognition, and he's also a science writer. His book, Are Dolphins Really Smart?, came out a couple years ago, and he's written for Scientific American, The Wall Street Journal, lots of other places, including Earth Touch. And in addition to that, Justin also is a voice actor. He's done some TV commercials that you've probably heard, and he's also done some animated cartoons, including a starring role as Thor in Thor Legends of Valhalla, which I think is pretty cool. As you might imagine, we talked about animal cognition, dolphin behavior, all sorts of things like that. We talked about what it really means to call an animal intelligent. And then the conversation shifted a bit, and we talked about some of the complicated ways in which our species interacts with dolphins, like with ecotourism, for one thing, and in some parts of the world, in terms of dolphin drive hunts. This episode is the first time that I have recorded an episode via Skype. It's nice to be able to sit down in person with someone to have a chat, but there are so many people that I want to try to include on the podcast, and they're scattered all over the world. So I thought it was time to give this a try. Uh, Reach out on social media if you like it, or if you don't think it sounded that good. Um... I think it sounds pretty good, but uh, reach out on social media and let me know what you think um, so I can plan for future episodes. Here comes The Wildlife, episode 28, with a master of marine mammals, Justin Gray. So the tradition is that uh, the guest goes first in terms of uh, sharing something new that uh, he or she has learned. Um, so uh, I'll turn it over to you then. Great. Well, here's some here's a article that just came out on Tuesday on uh, May 12th in Animal Cognition. I'm not sure if you've seen this. Um, it's about empathy in rats. Uh, there is a sort of study that was sort of famous from a couple years ago where you had one rat inside of a cage. And if the other rat uh, who was just outside uh, heard him you know, calling for help or making lots of noise, it would open up the little cage and, and let him out. So that was uh, an example, supposedly, of uh, empathy in rats. And this is sort of a follow-up sort of study um, where some, I think these are researchers in Japan, they took one rat and they had him in an area of the cage that had water in it. So the rat was kind of soaked in water and getting wet. And rats uh, are not really big fans of water. Uh, So they had another rat behind a door uh, and that rat would see his friend in the water uh, and open up uh, the door uh, to let him out. So similar to the first experiments, it seemed he was uh, there to help his friend. Uh, But they had another experiment where they did the same thing, only they didn't have uh, water. So the first rat wasn't really in any stress, in any distress. He was just sort of behind a door uh, and the other rat wouldn't open the door for him. So uh, this provides some evidence that it wasn't just these rats seeking social contact. So he wasn't opening the door just to hang out with his uh, friend, but he was actually trying to help him because he was in distress. And in the third experiment, um, it was the same sort of setup, only this time they had a bit of food behind another door. Uh, So 
the second rat had to choose between helping his semi-drowning friend or getting some food, uh, and he chose to first help out his friend and then get the food and sometimes even share the food. So the conclusion uh, then is that this seems to be something like uh, empathy in rats, and then of course the big discussion about well, what is empathy and what exactly are the rats thinking? You know, does the the first does the second rat really understand what's going inside the first rat's head? And is that why he's helping him, or is it something else that's triggering uh, the helping behavior? But cool little study and uh, brand new. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, I definitely saw that paper when it came out, and I've seen some of the coverage of it last uh, day or two. Um, and I, I think that that last uh, experiment, the one in which the rat had to give up eating in order to um, help the second rat, is for me like that's the, uh, you know, that's sort of the gold in this experiment. Because when there's nothing to lose, um, you know, when you're not losing opportunity or resources, then there's no reason not to help another individual. But when yeah. you have to sort of make that decision and uh, risk a possible trade-off between, um, you know, getting nutrition, getting food, and uh, helping out your friends, um, that's sort of where I think it gets really interesting. Granted, these animals were in a laboratory, so there, there was, there was not a real risk of losing the food. Um, yeah. Like there might be it in might the wild. It, yeah, indeed. A different situation might have triggered different behavior altogether if you knew you could get the food. Uh, you know. But yeah, I th what I think is interesting um, about that is, you know, one of the reasons that might be triggering this behavior is that maybe the second rat just really hated the sound of this other rat in distress, and that sort of triggers this deep response to want to stop that sound, you know what I mean? Not really empathy, but oh, just yeah. sort of behavioral cue. Um, but even in the, in the case of the third experiment, like apparently, even if that's the reason, that cue is so strong that it overrides the one for food, uh, for getting food, which is uh, in itself an interesting finding, regardless of how deep the empathy might be. Yeah, that's interesting because um, isn't there some evidence that like part of the reason why uh, mothers will go and help uh, infants of, of multiple species across across uh, certainly among mammals um, is because that like the cry is such a salient, um, such a distressing cue. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, there are at least characteristics of of young animals that are so semi universal, at least for mammals anyway. Uh, you know, the big eyes, the really high-pitched crying and all that sort of stuff. And so, so the, the, the triggers that that seems to have run pretty deep as far as uh, the, our mammalian lineage goes. So that's why you see these videos on YouTube of, of a lioness suddenly helping out a baby gazelle. Right, which seems, right. You know, totally counterintuitive, but somehow must be explainable by her reacting to something that the baby is doing, crying or just looking cute. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me, there was a piece that I wrote about uh, for Scientific American a few months ago where these researchers recorded the uh, infant cries of all kinds of mammals from, like, you know, deer um, to seals to, like, carnivores, like uh, big cats and, and things like that. Um, and then they did playback experiments so you're like in the middle of a forest in like upstate New York or somewhere around that part of the country. Um, I don't remember exactly where they were. And they would broadcast the call of like an infant seal through a speaker. And all of a sudden they've got uh, deer coming up to uh, inspect. Um, and, it, yeah. and it you know, they didn't get that same kind of response when it was the calls of uh, adult seals, for example. Um, it was there was something in sort of the acoustic 
quality of the calls of mammalian infants that sort of sets off this like generalized I need to go help response or at least I need to go investigate. Yeah, there seem to be a lot of uh, universals when it comes to calling, even outside of uh, mammals. Uh, you know, you might when you have a low, deep, rumbly kind of roary sound like a crocodile might make or a lion, like right. that's universally understood as a, a you know a threat and danger. And then the high pitched sounds would be something a young animal might make is pretty recognizable as requiring help. So yeah, there are those all those uh, universals. So it's pretty amazing to hear about, but uh, also I suppose not that not that surprising. I mean, even if you think about our own species. Uh, we respond pretty deeply to the sounds of a young animal uh, in distress that's pretty easily recognizable. And that's not something we, I don't think we've all been taught that runs pretty deep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that you bring up this story about the rats because um, the thing that I was prepared to talk about, um, I think uh, sort of overlaps some of these questions about you know what these, what these kinds of responses really tell us. Um, so there was a paper that came out today. I think the embargo on it actually just lifted a couple hours ago in Current Biology, and it's um, it's a study from uh, Caltech of of fruit flies of Drosophila flies, um, and they were looking mm -hmm. at fear. So the question is: We know that an organism, if it perceives some kind of a threat, it will uh, respond in some kind of appropriate way. Um, in an effort to survive, right? So if you're a yeah. if you're a little fly and uh, you see a fly swatter coming at you, um, that uh, maybe or a big looming shadow, um, which is something that lots of organisms like know sort of perceive as threatening, um, they'll you know freeze sometimes or they'll run away and hide whatever the appropriate response is. But the question that these researchers wanted to know is. Um, whether that meant that the fly like was afraid like is it is it sort of a reflexive uh survival response or is there actually something a little bit more complex going on there in terms of how it recognizes the threat um yeah it it's that question the really the question is to what extent is an animal experiencing these kinds of emotions right I think at, th at this stage, everyone's pretty comfortable saying something like fear is one of these basic uh, neural responses that any brain, whether or not it's a uh, invertebrate or not, is is producing. Uh, you know, it's what drives it, what what drives behavior. A big looming shadow is going to make you want to move. That seems like an old kind of uh, neural circuit that should be in there for a long time. But then the question is, is that available to some form of uh, conscious version of the brain, which then experiences? fear in the same way that a human might understand fear. And that is the, you know, that is the black box uh, question. You could do all of these experiments. I mean, that's really uh, cool to this rat empathy thing, for example, but it still doesn't really answer the question of do they experience it? So did the, did the Drosophila study try and address that as well? Well, so what they did was um, they sort of looked at, and, and this is an approach that I think makes, you know, makes a lot of sense. It's, it's in some ways similar to the kind of approach that I took in grad school to thinking about animal cognition, which was they thought about what fear is, what like a fear response is, um, you know, in us, in humans, um, and then sort of tried to identify what the building blocks of it are, what sort of the emotional primitives of it are. So, for example... Um, you know, if you hear a gunshot, you might be afraid. If you hear lots of gunshots in a row, you become more and more afraid, 
Um, mm. So there's sort of a scalability to it. Um, if you hear a gunshot, you might be afraid, and then you don't hear a gunshot again for a while, but you still remain fearful. So there's there's some sort there's some sort of uh, persistence uh, to the emotion even after the stimulus has disappeared. Um, so things like this. Um, and so they went to they created this sort of experiment where they put these flies in a little arena and then exposed them to looming shadows over and over and over again um, hmm. to see whether their responses uh, sort of showed these same kinds of patterns in terms of things like persistence and scale. Um, and they found that uh, in general they did. Um, the flies would escape the uh, shadow faster and faster uh, as it uh, as they experience the shadow more and more often. Um, so suggesting that sort of the, they, they, they were prepared to respond, that there's their, their response was a little bit amped up. Um, yeah. If they were feeding and the shadow sort of got them to stop feeding and go hide or go take cover, um, then as the shadow was presented more and more often, it would take them longer and longer to return to feeding as if they had to like calm down. Um, before they could sort of go back to what they were doing, um, so that doesn't tell us uh, that doesn't tell us whether uh, you know whether they feel afraid or whether they perceive a shadow as as scary, um, but I think it does tell us that there it's a little bit uh, it's at least more complex than a basic reflex. Um, yeah, no, and it, because it's uh, you know because it's Drosophila because it's these fruit flies. Now, now that sort of they've proven that they can get these kinds of responses in a predictable way with these sorts of stimuli, I think it opens up the possibility because we know so much about the neurobiology and genetics of these uh, of these animals. Um, it sort of opens up the possibility to uh, to get at some of these uh, some of the mechanistic questions about how these emotions or emotion like responses work. Yeah, I, it reminds me of that study. You probably remember the details better than I about pessimism and bees. You, you yeah, remember that one? I, it sounds familiar. I don't remember the details. I, I, yeah, I don't either, but it, I think it was something similar about sort of the persistence of the initial uh, state, whatever they had done to the bees, uh, that caused them to behave, um, you know, pessimistically. I can't remember what the de exact the details were. Yeah, I, but, I uh, remember it, something, it, I think, I, I remember a study of pigs, actually, um, in one of the animal behavior journals that took uh, pigs um, that had been raised either in enriched or in deprived environments, and then subjected them to novel stimuli. And the mm -hmm. ones that had been raised in an enriched environment responded much more inquisitively to the novel stimulus. Um, and the ones that had been raised in a more uncertain, more deprived environment responded more fearfully. And the way the researchers interpreted that was sort of along the lines of optimism or pessimism you know, based, on, based on your prior experiences of how the world works. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's right. Now I remember that's what, what the B thing was as well. Uh, was um, exploratory behavior, I think, right. uh, like they associated a, a, a good smell and a, a you know, neutral smell, and then they did something mean to the bees, like they shook them up, uh, and after being um, shaken, they were less likely to ex explore something that wasn't going to give them an instant reward, right. so they behaved more cautiously, which, and that, I guess that persisted over time as well. Yeah, which we kind of, we, we kind of have the human version of that too, sort of in the, uh, 
the uh, Mary Ainsworth's um, strange situation, um, right? With this, which is this uh, weird experiment that they would do with uh, with human children and their caregivers, uh, initially mothers and then later fathers and other caregivers, um, and uh, based on the child's responses to uh, strangers in the room, either while mom or dad was present or not present um, as well, um, they, they were able to classify these children as securely attached to their caregivers or insecurely attached. Um, so if mom is there and a stranger tries to play with you and you're more willing to engage with the stranger, um, that might suggest that you're uh, more securely attached to your caregivers, whereas, um, you know, when mom leaves the room or when a stranger tries to engage with you uh, when mom isn't there, uh, I'm sorry, when mom is there, um, and you're less willing to explore or engage in that way, that might suggest that you don't see your caregiver as a uh, sort of as a secure base. Yeah, it, this uh, these sorts of things sort of bleed right into that uh the study of personality in animals, which is uh, sort of a newer thing yeah. these days. Uh, so you have an animal with a you know that is more um, more curious or less secure, you know, more fearful in general. Uh, and so, how did they get that way? Of course, is the big nature nurture question. Right. Uh, and of course, there's probably a bit of uh, past experiences, like shaking up a bee will produce a permanently pessimistic bee. Uh, it's probably the same for most animals and babies as well. So uh, these things are all sort of tied together, which is, I think it's fascinating because for a lot of people, the idea, still, I think the idea of animals having distinct personalities doesn't seem like science. It seems like something the crazy cat lady might be able to tell you, but wouldn't be backed up by, by hard uh, facts. But I, I, but these days, I think scientists are pretty open to this idea. And uh, yeah, these, this Drosophila study and the rat study and all that sort of seems all part of the same puzzle. Yeah. So, I mean, that... That sort of, uh, you know, raises the question. I, I feel like a lot of these experiments just kind of move the goalposts from, you know, do animals uh, have these kinds of emotions to, well, are they really subjectively aware of these emotions the way we are? And even yeah. though we we do seem to be subjectively aware of these emotions, what does that even what does that even mean? Um, yeah, you know, because I think a, a lot of people. Uh, would rather believe would rather not believe that we're just sort of responding in a in a um reflexive sort of programmed way to stimuli um mm. you know that there's some kind of um decision making and agency um yeah and what some of these experiments might be suggesting is that our our responses, our behaviors are a lot more predictable than we'd like to believe. Yeah, yeah. That's what's interesting about the human psychology for sure is uh, the question of this illusion of conscious uh, control over your actions. Is, is that even, uh, I mean, that's still a discussion point. Is Do we even really have conscious control over our actions and how much of it is more of this basic, you know, stimulus response concept than, you know, that we want to admit. But then, of course, the other side of the coin is, uh, like you mentioned, people are always thinking animals um, don't have this kind of uh, complicated uh, internal reaction to things, a thoughtful, conscious uh, experience of the world, and and maybe they do. But but the, the black box problem is always going to trip people up because you can't ever really know for sure exactly what an animal is thinking or feeling. So depending on where you want to put the goalpost, uh, you can say, well, 
uh, if we don't know, then you know we should just assume that they don't. Right. Or if they don't know, give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they do. And then where you come down on that uh, determines your sort of ethical take on things involving animal rights and animal <laughs> animal welfare, etc. Right. So I think I think that uh, gives us a good segue into some of the other stuff that um, I wanted to make sure we got to. Um, on on your work on on dolphins and on the book you wrote about dolphins um which was called are dolphins really smart right yep and that's it. and there's like a few like you can you can depending on how you uh use your inflection the book title can can be understood in several different ways i think yeah that was the that was i guess the way the the publisher was thinking about it as well are they, you know are they really smart as in uh, are they actually dumb or are they really smart meaning are they super smart um, so they they kind of like the ambiguity of uh, of the of the phrase right and 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 dolphins i think um like people sort of certainly in our community in the science uh, communication community um sort of joke about how you know everybody just loves dolphins and People grow up saying they want to be a marine biologist when what they really mean is they want to play with dolphins. Um, (laughs) But dolphins do seem to hold some sort of special fascination in human culture. Um, You know, we certainly from like the uh, like from some very weird things that go on in terms of people who want to like give birth in the sea when they're surrounded by dolphins and people who are convinced that uh, dolphin echolocation is somehow like if a dolphin echolocates towards you, it's somehow there's a health benefit. Um, yes. Yeah. All the way to sort of, you know, you're sort of more reasonable in some ways. Um, uh, fascination with dolphins uh, as, as animals who are, you know, uh, super intelligent and perhaps uh you know equivalent or even surpassing humans and in our intelligence um so no matter i think where you fall on the uh super sort of crazy wooey side to the more grounded in science side dolphins hold a very special place in human culture they yeah they absolutely do and um that's one of the reasons it's both great and super annoying to uh, want to write about them <laughs> and to, to study them. It's great because you picked an animal everyone's going to respond to, so you can always have a conversation at, at dinner about dolphins. Right. You know, if I were studying, you know, naked mole rats, I'd probably not have much to say after a few seconds. But everyone knows something about dolphins and has questions to ask, which is wonderful. But then the, the other side is that everyone seems to know all these things about dolphin. And, and as someone, I'm really interested in science communication and sort of, getting the, the facts out there. What is it that scientists really know? Uh, that means you have a pretty big thing you need to cut through to get down to the facts because there's this giant layer of complicated and strange information that's out there. Uh, and it's sort of a monumental task to say, well, I'm just, which is what I wanted to do in the book. Like, let's just take a look at all the things that uh, people think about dolphin cognition and, and get, get down to brass tacks and figure out exactly what it is that scientists do know. Uh, and it's a tall order. Yeah. That's for sure. So, so what, um, you know, if you had to, if you had to choose, um, what do you think are the, you know, biggest misconceptions about dolphins? Uh, misconceptions. Well, a lot of it is, is sort of a gray, a gray area. So I wouldn't, it's, it's hard to just say, well, that's totally debunked and it's nothing like you think it is. Uh, because oftentimes it's, it's a little bit true and a little bit not true. It depends on the specific 
question and how you look at it. But uh, one of the ones I think that is just generally not correct in the terms of an assumption that most many people have anyway is that dolphins are super uh, friendly and peaceful. Right. Friendly for sure. They can be very friendly towards people and towards each other. Uh, but but peaceful is uh, n- is not something I think borne out by any evidence whatsoever. I mean, observing dolphins in captivity or in the wild doesn't take more than 10 or 15 minutes to realize that they can be, uh, you know, pretty mean and aggressive like any other social species. So I think that's, but and yet it's still a very persistent thought, especially in the new age community, that dolphins are extremely peaceful and never engage in aggressive behavior unless provoked in some way. Right. That there, There's this idea that they are so intelligent that they've sort of transcended aggression. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's the that's the explanation. Like they don't need to be aggressive uh, anymore because they they've developed this community of helping each other out with this strong empathy and uh, yeah. Right, and, so and there are uh, these tales of like uh, you know uh, uh, shipwrecked sailors and things like that, people whose boats have sunk um, that are that they get so called rescued by dolphins, and I'm sure I'm sure. Um, I'm I'm sure there are there are shades of gray there and some things that are some tales that are a little bit more reasonable and some tales that are a little bit less reasonable, um, in terms of their relationship with humans, but we certainly know that dolphins, uh, you know, they kill baby porpoises all the time, um, they certainly have tons of aggression within their own social groups and between social groups between males and females. Yeah, it, the, the evidence is is pretty abundant, really. Um, it doesn't take more than a quick Google search uh, just to see videos of that, uh, let alone publications. Uh, so it, it it always baffled me a little bit as to why people would deny it. But I think most reasonable people uh, wouldn't. They would see them as a complicated social animal, just like all the other social mammals out there, humans and chimpanzees and things, capable of uh, you know things that are terrible, like infanticide, and also capable of amazing acts of uh, kindness maybe rescuing human swimmers maybe not uh, i always uh, people always talk about all these stories and and unfortunately there's no real hard evidence there's no like good video of someone being rescued uh, and so I, i'm always i'm always skeptical in the sense that there isn't really a video we can turn to to see it happening to analyze what's going on so it's all sort of hearsay um, but at the same time, I think it's entirely possible that a dolphin could save a drowning swimmer. It's certainly not outside of, of what you might expect from it. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, got, we've got at least enough examples uh, more generally of sort of interspecies cooperation. Um, yeah. Uh, sort of in a general way, at least that it's plausible. It, cer- it certainly is. I mean, you see dolphins helping other dolphins of the same and the different species if they're sick or they're drowning and... Uh, you know, people who say that a dolphin helped keep them afloat, that doesn't sound too impossible, really. But then you have other stories, like the dolphins came out of the deep and formed a protective circle to to repel sharks and helped attack the sharks. Like, that could happen. Although, I always say, when you're dealing with a an account from someone who's drowning in the <laughs> middle of the ocean, how reliable can it be? You know, they're moments from death. Maybe they're about to be, uh, you know, b- bitten by a shark. Right. Like, I'm not sure that they're the most reliable source at that time. I... That's why scientists use things like uh, video, right? Right. And, you know, have three or four other people coding the behavior to figure out what's really going on. So, okay, so let's um let's talk about language then, because your uh like your job is with the dolphin communication project, right? 
Uh, yeah, that's right. Nonprofit organization I, I, I work with. Yeah. So what's, uh, what is the research that you're doing? Um, I, at the moment, we're studying actually uh, not com vocal communication between dolphins, but uh, the sort of physical tactile uh, communication. Oh, so how dolphin Yeah, how dolphins use their pectoral fins uh, to rub each other. Because uh, dolphins are very tactile uh, animals, but they don't just touch each other willy-nilly. You know, you'll see more contact between a mother and a calf, for example, or two juvenile males, but not so much an adult male and a you know juvenile female. Like that's less likely. So we're trying to look at all those different combinations of touching. You know, which animals are touching each other and why, and also what parts of the body they might be touching and why, and what does it mean. So of course that's uh, a really interesting form of communication for dolphins, although. For most people uh, who think about dolphin communication, probably the less the less interesting aspect because they want to think of the vocalizations and whether or not uh, that might be language. That's sort of the big question most people have. So how does how does this work? Because like at at sort of the basic sort of research methods level, you know, I think most people can sort of wrap their minds around how you do observations of like terrestrial species. You know, if you're studying yeah. lion social behaviors, for example. You sit in your Jeep or you sit in a blind um, with your binoculars and a camera and a notepad and you kind of watch what the lions do and like they move around but they don't move around that much at least during the day. Um, so you can you can sort of stay in one place for a while and kind of watch what they're doing. Um, dolphins, I mean any sort of marine mammals, um, I think first of all you have to find them, right? Um, yep. And then it's not like, like they're... They're always moving like they don't yeah. they don't like sleep under a tree for a few hours and sort of groom each other. <laughs> it's true. It has made the study of dolphin communication so very, very difficult uh, in that, A, you, you can't find the animals. And even if you do, uh, let's say you're you're in a boat, so you're doing boat based research and you're looking down, you really only see them when they come up to breathe, which right. takes a second and then, and then they're gone. And so there's not a lot of information. It's just it's distorted view of, of what they're doing. You know, most of the time they spend underwater where people aren't. Uh, and so there are a handful of places around the world where human researchers are able to actually be in the water and record dolphin behavior with underwater uh, cameras, which is very helpful. That's what our organization does. It's very helpful of, to see what they're really doing under the waves. So not just up at the surface, but down below. And that's where you see all this uh, pectoral fin rubbing behavior. And you, re you can record their vocalizations. And if you're if you're really lucky, uh, which most people are not, uh, you are swimming with a group of dolphins that is habituated and used to human presence, and so they will more or less go about their you know business as if the humans weren't there. So you can like we don't have blinds obviously in the ocean, so usually when a dolphin sees you, it interacts with you or it reacts to you in some way, and you want it to be able to be at, behave completely normally as if you weren't there. So the only way to do that is like. Uh, Jane Goodall would have done with chimpanzees is to spend a really long time hanging around them so that they get used to you. And then maybe they'll do something that seems like natural behavior and then you can record it. But only after you find them and only when the water visibility is good and your camera is working, etc. So you can spend decades uh, studying dolphins like Kathleen Dudzinski, my uh, PhD supervisor, did. And you have data, but it's it's nothing compared to what you spend you know, a weekend studying lions. You can fill up an uh, Excel spreadsheet with data. You know that would take you years with dolphins, right? So, uh, which, where, where are the dolphins that you study? Um, the, the dolphin communication project has a bunch of uh, research sites 
Well, the main one for wild dolphins is Bimini in the Bahamas. Right. Uh, and there's a bunch of dolphins, spotted and bottlenose dolphins, that live just offshore. So you can take a boat out, uh, and if you're lucky, you'll see them. Uh, if you're a bit more lucky, you can get in the water with them and film their behavior, at least uh, when it's not hurricane season. Huh. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty good wild site. There's good visibility. The water is warm. We also had a site out in Japan, in Mikura Island, which is a couple hundred kilometers off of Tokyo. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that population. Yeah, and they, they hang around the little island there, and there's a tourist industry based on uh, dolphin watching. And you can also get in the water with them there uh, and record their behavior. Uh, and then there are also a couple um, captive facilities, the Roatan Institute of Marine Sciences uh, being one of them, uh, Dolphin Encounters in Nassau. And so w- our group uses the same uh, research protocol. So we, we get in the water with our camera, uh, and we just do these focal follows, so we just follow one animal with the camera as as long as you can and then switch to the next one. And you don't interact with them in any way. You don't do any training. You're just there to observe their behavior and hope they ignore you. And so by collecting the same kind of data at all these different sites, you can also do comparisons between different species, uh, you know, different um, conditions of the water and also captive and wild uh, dolphin behavior. Right. So here's, uh, well, I was going to say here's my question, but I'm, I obviously have more than one. Um, um, in in places where there is like whale watching, you know, dolphin based tourism, like in Japan and uh, as far as I can see, pretty much everywhere in the world where there are dolphins, there is some kind of ecotourism operation. That's true. Um, at least yep. you know near near major majorly populated coastlines. Um, how much can we be sure that their behavior is really not influenced by humans? Because we know that in some places um, for different kinds of species, um, uh, the presence of uh, tourism boats um, changes sort of their daily activity budgets, um, changes when and where and with whom they're interacting. Even if they don't directly interact with humans, it's sort of changing their other behaviors, um, foraging opportunities, and then, and then there's the issue of noise. Yeah, no, all of those things absolutely have to have an influence on these coastal populations. Um, that's just, that's going to be a fact, uh, no matter where you are. Um, so every time we write a, a paper, an article, ultimately ends with the caveat of, you know, uh, of course, our presence in the water will have influenced their behavior, which is true. But also, of course, the industry around them, like you said, the boats, the noise from the boats. Uh, and there are studies that we've been involved in where you also st- study how the studying affects the dolphin's right. behavior. So how, how do these tourist boats or these research vessels affect dolphins' behavior? Uh, and of course, uh, not unexpectedly, they're not always interested in being anywhere near humans. So if you start chasing after them with a boat, they will, uh, they will leave. Right. That absolutely is uh, sort of part of the part of what you get when you're studying dolphins in the wild. And there's, unfortunately, there's really no way around it unless you do some of these uh, passive sort of acoustic monitoring where you just dunk a microphone and you leave it sitting there and then you get audio data and sometimes video, but usually not. So right. uh, that's what makes them so difficult to, to study. So speaking about ecotourism, this is, this is sort of uh, something that I've been thinking about for a long time. You know, it's on balance, um, I think I think just about anyone would agree that uh, to the extent that ecotourism mm-hmm. 
allows animals to be more valuable alive than dead, then ecotourism is is a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, in general, from a scientific perspective, uh, sort of the, the data is there and we've sort of, you know, it's, it is the case that ecotourism is preferable to exploitation or to, to other kinds of exploitation um, that are that are worse for for animal welfare. Um, but I think we're sort of in the last few years, uh, at least in the scientific community, we're sort of yeah. starting to think about some of the negative effects of ecotourism. Um, and I'm wondering sort of what sort of what you think about some of these issues. Um, you know, is there a way to have ecotourism in a more sustainable way? Because, like, you think, like, there are some places, uh, Australia and elsewhere, where you're not talking about one or two boats in the water. You're talking about, you know, hundreds in the water yeah. and places where animals are, you know, uh, fed food to keep them around. Um, you've got places uh, like, uh, not for dolphins, but like... Um, what's it called? Stingray city. Oh, uh, right. I think in the Bahamas, yeah, Stingray alley, um, Stingray city. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Where like, there are all these stingrays and they're habituated to people. And there's, you know, uh, I've never been there, but I've seen these photos of, you know, hundreds of tourists in like, you know, uh, uh, like basically knee, knee deep water, um, surrounded by stingrays. Um, and they're, they're, they're wild stingrays. They're not captive but they're provisioned with food. Yeah. And I think there's starting to be some evidence that actually the stingrays there are becoming more aggressive with each other than, than other populations that don't sort of have that to contend with. Yeah. Now, d- uh, provisioning of dolphins uh, is also a huge problem because they're uh, perhaps even more susceptible than stingrays to changing their behavior because once they figure right. out where they can get the food, they'll... They'll start chasing down boats. They'll start interacting with humans. And that happens in the U.S. where it's it's completely illegal to be feeding dolphins at all. But a lot of people do it off the coast of Florida. Uh, and then you end up with dolphins that just chase after tourists to recreation boats looking for a handout. And that's that's bad, right. you know, because... They, and, and that's kind of how people get hurt, right? That's how people... That's absolutely how people would get bitten. And dolphins. And dolphins. So it's bad for everybody uh, in, in that sense. But... But the the tourism issue is like you say it's it's a it is a it is a big problem because tourism is uh, very popular especially with whale and dolphin watching and there are responsible and irresponsible ways uh, to do it so uh, there are studies but not enough to see what the impact might be on local populations and usually it's negative uh, but the question is well to what extent is it negative are you going to be, you know, are you going to have fewer births? Is it going to affect the population in that sense? Is it going to change their foraging? Uh, and then it's uh, a huge problem. But um, but you can't stop people from going out to the animals because they're just going to do it. So what you need is regulation that is enforced, that's based on good science and best practices to make sure that the impact is minimal. There's always going to be an impact, but that it's minimal. And some of the places we've been uh, researching you do have that. Like in Japan, you only had a certain number of boats allowed out a certain number of times per day to try and stop uh, the pressure on the animals. Uh, but you still see that the animals aren't always happy, and sometimes the local population leaves the island. That, that had happened a few years ago. A lot of the animals that used to be there are just gone. They moved on. They got sick of all the boats, uh, which is obviously uh, an issue. So it's about working with... Uh, you know, you need legislation in place, you need enforcement in place, uh, and you need good science to base it on. 
It's interesting to me that you, that you say that there are these regulations in Japan because Japan is also uh, one of the places where these dolphin drive hunts are still going on. Yeah, no, that um, it's true because <laughs> you go down the coast a few hundred kilometers and you get, uh, you know, they're slaughtering dolphins in Taiji and then you go to Mikura and they have tight regulations on how close, you know, how often the boats can go out. Um, and uh, yeah, it's... It's confusing, of course, but that's, you know, the Japanese mindset can be confusing for, for Westerners a lot of the time. But uh, uh, to them, dolphins, much like they are to us, are can be a commodity, uh, just like anything else, whether or not it's food or, or tourism. And that's the same. Right. That's the same for humans, depending on the species as well. You know, you have uh, people that go to petting zoos to pet the, you know, pet the cows. And then you have, you <laughs> know, uh, slaughtering cows, uh, you know, just around the corner. So. Sim yeah. similar in that sense yeah i learned i learned uh last year i was reporting a story on catalina island where they have this um this herd of bison um and i learned that bison are sort of this odd species in the u.s because depending on the uh sort of source population mm. they can either be classified as wildlife or as livestock right um and based on the classification means sort of different things about how you can interact with them over whether they can be owned by an individual or not, hmm. um, th things like that. So yeah, I think I think you know the, the the fact that in some ways we are a little bit confused about our relationship with animals is not all that surprising, um, even in a place um, like Japan, where you know which which thanks to thanks to documentaries like the Cove and Blackfish is is known um, for some of these um, unsavory practices. Yeah, I remember always this question of which animals uh, can you eat and which can't you eat and how to treat them is so complicated and culturally based a lot of the time. I remember when I was in Japan, I was speaking with an acquaintance who had some, some whale meat in his freezer that he had acquired from the quote-unquote research vessels in Japan. Uh, right. And he was jokingly asking me, do you want me to make you a whale burger? He knew that I wouldn't eat it. And I'm like, well, I don't eat whale. And then he's Serious, was asking me seriously. Well, why don't why don't you eat whale in in the West? And and I couldn't come up with a coherent argument. I could say, well, you know, because because they're intelligent or because they're beautiful. But that might apply to a lot of species which I would consider eating, but I'd never consider right. eating a whale. The only explanation I could offer him that made any sense was that, well, in my culture, whales are a taboo animal as far as eating is concerned. Like, would you eat a cat or a dog? And he said, of course not. I'm like, well, it's the same for a lot of Western people uh, and whales. So it's just one of those animals in the category of we don't eat it. Right, because arguably an animal like a pig is um, also quite intelligent. You know, whatever, however you choose to understand what the word intelligent means. Um, there are certainly animals that, that we eat regularly that um, that sort of, can fall into those categories. Yeah, a pig, um, pig especially. In the West. Um, and and uh, and even you know uh, even I, I think one of the uh, arguments you make in your book and in a lot of the interviews you did at that time was that uh, even chickens um, uh, are in their own way quite intelligent, which I appreciated. You know, having studied chickens in grad school. <laughs> Excellent. Um, because you know a, a chicken like the kinds of uh, cognitive skills that a human needs to solve the kinds of problems we have to solve are are simply 
you know, many of those problems are problems that chickens don't have to contend with. Yeah. You know, chickens are chickens evolved to be to have the sort of cognitive tools, the mental tools that they need to to deal with chicken life. Yeah, and that's really one of the main points of my book. That 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 point that you're making there, uh, and so I sort of I led the book with the with the chicken uh, angle to try and get people in because people always think of ch- chickens are really stupid. So if I could get them to realize that, well. What does stupid mean to you? Chickens are designed to do what it is chickens do, and that itself is is pretty impressive as far as cognition goes. Uh, and I was trying to get everyone back to, to thinking about what it means to be an animal, how an animal thinks, and understanding how it thinks, and appreciating all the different kinds of intelligence that we see. Uh, but I, you know, when the news people picked up on it and they say, "Well, oh, here's a guy saying chickens are, you know, dolphins are just as dumb as chickens. <laughs> and then that became the angle. And then I became the villain. And then it, it, all, right. it all got out of hand. But, uh, well, yeah, the point I'm making, if you're just looking at the science and stripping away all the sensation, is exactly what you said. So so getting, the, that, that was, I, I sort of went off on that on that tangent. But I want to sort of get back to this question of culture and how different cultures think about animals. Because I was just... Um, Last week or two weeks ago, I I wrote a, a piece for Conservation Magazine about these dolphin drive hunts um, that occur in the Solomon Islands. The same kind of um, same kind of traditions as what happens in some parts of Japan. Mm. Um, and there, it's not the necessarily the meat that they're after, although they do um, they do use it and sell the meat. Um, but uh, it's really the teeth. Um, because apparently in, in that culture, dolphin teeth um, are uh, really valued sort of commodity. It's used for trade. It's used for wedding dowries and all sorts of things like that as, as signs of um, sort of status. Um, and, you know, the like when, when culture and tradition run into uh, ideas about animal welfare, um, I think there's an interesting set of problems uh, in terms of how we think about trying to legislate or trying to motivate mm. people in other parts of the world to interact with animals differently. I mean, we could come up with an arbitrary number of animals that could be uh, um, killed, yeah. which would be sustainable in terms of the population. And from a conservation perspective, that's that's a good goal. But from an animal welfare perspective, obviously, you don't want drive hunts to occur at all. Um, so uh, I, I'm not I'm not exactly sure what the question here is, but uh, this is sort of this is a complicated set of issues. It, it is, and I mean, for the Solomon Islands, there's like you're talking about there. There's two ways of looking at it as a Westerner who's going to disapprove of those kinds of hunts as most would you say well why what argument are we going to use to tell them to to stop it you know is it a welfare thing because you know you're treating them uh, cruelly cruelly and this is a kind of animal that shouldn't be treated that way or is it an ecological sort of population approach like well these might be an endangered species uh, that you're you're messing with but of course they're not i mean there's not there's even a question as to whether or not the dolphins around the solomon islands are having their local populations impacted negatively at all uh, or whether right. they can handle it, let alone the worldwide populations of like bottomless dolphins, which are perfectly, you know, doing great. So 
right. probably slaughter all the ones around the Solomon Islands and they'd be <laughs> fine, you know? But so that's that's a weird argument. So it depends on what angle you're kind of approaching it. And often all of those things sort of get lumped in together when you're arguing why you shouldn't do something. And and you can look uh, hypocritical. And that's one of the reasons like in Taiji when we tell people you can't kill dolphins or you can't go kill whaling. And as an American, they might look and say, well, look, you allow subsistence whaling for Inuit folks um, to kill a certain number of bowhead whales per year. So right. how can you allow that and then tell us that we can't do it? What's the difference? And then and then things become complicated because you're arguing, you know, partly from a cultural perspective and but also from a welfare, but then also from a, a ecological perspective. So all the arguments are tossed in together and then uh, it's hard to come up with a coherent and single message, which is why a lot of these countries like Solomon Islands can easily just ignore protests. Right, right. Because um, uh, uh, yeah, one of the one of the sort of uh, conclusions or tentative conclusions in this in this paper that I was uh, writing about, you know, these researchers sort of had long conversations with some of these. Um, dolphin hunters and sort of village elders and what they seem to so the interesting thing about this particular population is that a couple of years ago um some of these villages that still do the dolphin drive hunts signs an agreement with um the earth island institute mm-hmm. where basically they were paid to not hunt the dolphins um which which is an interesting strategy when it works and i guess it worked for a couple of years and then eventually the the people sort of went back to to hunting dolphins as they have for hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, and so the question was why, you know, the the research question was why did this sort of agreement break down? Yeah. And it it sort of came down to to culture, um, and you know the way that uh, the way that this population of people thinks about uh, sort of the, their sort of natural resources. Yeah. Um. It's similar to Japan or in Taiji. That's one of the 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 attempts to stop people from hunting the local dolphins. To say is to say, look, you can earn more money uh, by doing things like tourism, uh, and and we'll help support you in that. And and in some places, like in the other place in Japan, in Mikura, that's the way things have gone, and it all works out great. But then the question is, well, why don't they? Why isn't the economic reason enough? You know, why don't they just go ahead and say, well, yeah, we're going to earn three times as much by doing tourism. We'll stop the hunts. Uh, And yeah, then you have this cultural issue uh, dolphins in solomon islands or in japan are just seen as another kind of fish uh, and so they don't have any of the sort of cultural associations that we do in the west with them so it's harder for them to get over that hump and and not just see them as something else to, to kill and it's not a problem and i think i think it's you know we could we could look at that and say you know well then we need to educate them as to the importance of dolphins or as to sort of um, the, the biological differences between dolphins and, and you know, fish. Um, but that's kind of, a, um, uh, I think, culturally insensitive um, approach. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, I can say for myself that I would prefer, I prefer that this sort of... Um, tradition not be continued but then it's not my it's not my culture um and what what these researchers found um or sort of what they suspect based on their conversations with these people is that uh they don't think that they'll at least in the near term be able to sort of 
provide a good convincing argument um, to end these dry funds. Yeah. Um, but um, the 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 hunters do seem open to the idea of uh, sort of imposing empirical science based limits on like quotas um, so that they'll be able to keep doing this for year for generations to come. Yeah. Um, which, you know, which is, which is like, that's, it's sort of a twisted way to think about conservation. You know, you want to protect these animals so that this population will be sustainable enough to continue harvesting them year after year. Well, what's, what's interesting is when you look at the history in the United States of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which was, uh, had a huge impact on, on how uh, the local, fishermen dealt with whales and dolphins and that they could no longer hunt them at all. Uh, the, one of the main sort of driving arguments initially was that this is about um, conserve, conserving the stock, that we want to make right. sure you're not killing off all these animals so that later on we can come up with uh, useful ways to harvest them and, and use them. And that was, that was kind of uh, how it got through um, and became legislation. Together, coupled, of course, with the welfare argument, which was very powerful at the time as well, uh, but but no, it was the economic one and the preserving of the species, and then that blossomed into a whole different kind of relationship that we have in in the West, in the U.S. anyway, uh, with whales and dolphins. But at the time, it was that same kind of argument, like what you're talking about. These scientists are trying to offer in the Solomon Islands that sort of sort of kickstarted the the process and ec <laughs> economic stuff and preserving the the stock. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to people who otherwise don't have a personal bond with the species that we're talking about. That's interesting. I, I I didn't know that that that's sort of that was the uh, birth of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Yeah, in it, the U.S. Yeah, it was a, it was fishermen and and other um, whaling folks who sort of got together and were concerned about together with scientists and and welfare folks who were concerned about the population levels and the misuse of uh, of of the resource. That's it. It was birthed out of that kind of mentality. Of course, at the same time, you had these. Um, uh, tuna fisheries that were killing a lot of dolphins and that there was video of that right. and that became a very powerful uh, tool as well and then you had the 60s uh, ideas of dolphins and whales that were sort of bleeding in culturally but uh, but that that alone was not going to get it through congress you really needed to have uh, a good economic argument interesting yeah i definitely remember like in the you know when i was growing up in school like in the 90s um you know dolphin safe tuna was a huge thing um and and sort of the whole save the whales sort of uh you know culturally it was like i don't know if there if there's been since sort of a conservation issue that has been as um sort of culturally embedded as like save the whales yeah um you know i wish i wish that like you know rhino poaching and elephant poaching um sort of could rise to that level of cultural awareness yeah, it was it was indeed because I grew up in the in the same time period with Save the Whales being such you know in, impactful thing on on my own life, and I mean that's partly what sent me down this road of ending up studying dolphins as well. Yeah, it was it was a touchstone for everyone, and and it's it was so clear and so obvious, and you could get behind it. Whereas all it seems more complicated somehow today, and I don't know if that's because we have so much access to all kinds of different information. Uh, that it's harder to just come up with a singular cause uh, that everyone can can get behind. I mean, it's a pretty abstract idea, I guess, on protein. But you know what I mean? Like uh, rhino poaching seems uh, like an obvious one. And well, what is it that's preventing everyone from 
being up in arms about these animals, you know, almost right. extinct, you know, I don't know. Right. There may be, I mean, and, and the thing about like save the whales is that it, in many cases, it seems to have worked. Uh, the whale populations around the world uh, in many places seem to be rebounding and growing in size compared to a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. The moratorium on whaling um, absolutely did things like saved uh, the, the right whale population, uh, you know, cause they otherwise would have been extinct. And then the gray whales off the, the Pacific gray whale is, you know, his numbers were way down and then you stopped the whaling and now they just exploded. They're doing fantastically well. The, it's the impacts are huge. Yeah, and and one of the one of the neatest things for me, um, as that that sort of come out of um, having these rebounded populations, is we're getting all these sort of basic natural history observations of what these animals are doing, and now we're faced with this question, which I think is fascinating: of is this something that is uh, uh, sort of a result of a rebounded population in a particular place? Is this something that is new? Are these new behaviors? Um, or are these sort of, um, are these behaviors uh, fundamental to these species? And we just never noticed uh, because for the last few hundred years, you know, since we've sort of really been looking closely at the animal world from a scientific perspective, there weren't enough of these animals for us to notice. Yeah, that may be true. So, so, uh, we are uh, coming up on an hour. Um, these, these conversations always go a lot, uh, faster than, than, than they, um, than it seems like they would. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, why don't you, uh, tell all the nice people listening at home where they can find you and your work, uh, on the internet? Um, easily enough, you can go to justingreg.com and that has information about, uh, articles I've published, uh, Nowhere near as many as yours. You are extremely <laughs> prolific. I don't even know how you find the time. Uh, and also information about uh, my book and other future projects and crazy things that I get up to. Great. And as I remind people every week, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at jgold85, on Facebook at facebook.com slash jason.goldman. And you can listen to all of the previous episodes of The Wildlife on iTunes or on Stitcher. Uh, where uh, you are invited to uh, leave a rating or a review. Um, and you can also uh, find them, of course, on uh, uh, the wildlife blog at earthtouchnews.com. <laughs>